Father, how grateful we are to have a living word in front of us, a, a word that is living and active, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, that's able to judge the thoughts and intents of our heart, that searches us as nothing else can search us, that shows us who we are, who you are, what our hope is. So would you use your sharp word to do its gracious surgery in our souls this morning, rooting out unbelief, conquering sin, reviving desire and love for Christ and faith and hope in him. Would you do all that through this passage this morning and more than we could ever ask or imagine or think? For we ask it in the name of our conquering Savior, our reigning King, and our coming Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, as has already been reminded in our, in our opening welcome this morning by our deacon Tim Hoke, we are, we are in a season where the Lord has, has thrown us a curveball, where we're still reeling a little bit and trying to figure out where we're going going forward. But it's, it's amazing that in God's providence, we've landed where we've landed again this morning. Last week, we considered the theme of weakness, which many of us are feeling these days. And this morning, we get to consider the, the theme of what happens when God does things that you don't expect? What, how do we need to respond to those sorts of things when things aren't what they seem to be? You know, a person's character, and I would even say a congregation's character, is revealed during times where curveballs are sent to them. A great way to test out someone's character is to observe how they react when things don't go according to plan. Earlier this week, I came across a 2016 article about what CEO of Charles Schwab Corporation, Walt Bettinger, does to test out job candidates that he is looking to hire. He wants to see how they react in unpleasant circumstances when curveballs are thrown to them. And here's what the article reveals about his interview process. Before every new hire, Bettinger takes candidates out for a breakfast interview. But when the potential employees don't know, what the potential employees don't know is that every time Bettinger shows up early and asks the restaurant to purposely mess up the order in exchange for a large tip. For an employer like Bettinger, character is everything. He says that the wrong order test is meant to gauge how prospective hires deal with adversity. Are they upset? Are they frustrated? Or are they understanding? Life is like that, and business is like that, Bettinger said. It's just another way to look inside their heart rather than their head, he explained. Another thing Bettinger does is ask them to tell about their greatest successes in life. He says, what I'm looking for is whether their view of the world really revolves around others or whether it revolves around them. And I'll ask them about their greatest failures in their life and see whether they own them or whether they're somebody else's fault. In the same interview, Bettinger shared one of his biggest failures. He said that it was one of his last college exams which ruined his pristine 4.0 average. But it taught him how important it was to recognize individuals who do the real work. After spending hours studying and memorizing formulas for calculations, young Bettinger showed up to find that the exam was nothing but a blank sheet of paper. 
The professor said, I've taught you everything I can teach you about business in the last 10 weeks, he recalled. But the most important message, the most important question is this. What is the name of the lady who cleans this building? Benninger had no idea. He failed the exam and got a B in the class. That had a powerful impact, he said. Her name was Dottie, and I didn't know Dottie. I'd seen her, but I'd never taken the time to ask her name. Bettinger shared that since then, he's tried to know every Dottie he's ever worked with. It was a great reminder of what really matters in life. Well, this morning, we're going to see what God wants to do as he takes Moses on a little bit more of a job interview. He's going to throw him some curveballs and see how he responds. He wants to see how he's going to react when unpleasant circumstances happen or when things don't necessarily go as planned. And this morning, I want us to see four curveballs that God throws Moses' way. Here's the first one. Who we expect to be responsive, to not be responsive, is responsive. Who we expect to not be responsive is responsive. We see this in verses 18 through 20. Now Moses has just been called and commissioned. Last week we saw all the objections that he marshaled before God as to, the, as to be reasons for why he shouldn't be sent. God overruled all of them. He's sending them anyway. And we left the scene with Moses taking the staff and heading out. Now he's going home. He's going back to Midian to Jethro. Well, he's still in Midian as he confronts God, but he's going back home and he's going to talk to his father-in-law. How do you think this would go under normal circumstances? I don't think this conversation would be an easy conversation to have. He's going back to a man he spent 40 years with, the man who gave him his wife, with, who has grandchildren now. They're probably grand men and, at this point. But it's one thing to talk to Pharaoh, and it's another thing to talk to your father-in-law, especially about what you're going to do with his grandchildren and his daughter. Moses has got to have the conversation. He's got to say, I'm taking your daughter and your grandchildren, and we're going far away, and we might not ever come back. That's a hard conversation to have. And Moses handles it very vaguely. You notice that he gives a lot more detail when he talks to Aaron in verse 28. We'll come to that a little bit later. But when he talks to Jethro, he gives a very vague explanation. He doesn't quite tell the whole truth. I want to go back to Egypt to check on my people to see if they're alive. Where'd that come from? That's not what God told him to say. That's not what God told them they had anything to worry about. They're alive. They're thriving. They're growing. They're a nation of millions of people at this point. But he says to Jethro, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see if they're, if they're alive. Now, I think we can all agree that there's a little bit more to the story than that. Moses thought that this would be a better path to take than telling Jethro something like this. Jethro, uh, the Lord of the universe spoke to me from a burning bush. He told me that I was going to set a nation of two million people free, and I'm going to go to Pharaoh now and demand that they release him, and here's my magic stick. 
he left out those details. <laughs> why? Well, we're not told exactly why Moses did what he did or said what he said. But I think it's likely where we find ourselves from time to time. Okay, God, I trust you. I'm willing to follow you. But I'm too embarrassed to tell anybody too many details about that. Have you ever been there? Caught between your desires to be faithful to God and some, yet maintain some kind of respectability with other people? Most of us will not be able to have both those things, especially in our increasingly post-Christian world. We're going to have to choose. Are we going to be faithful to God? Or are we going to be unfaithful to God for the sake of having respectability with others? Now, that's not a call to not be kind or gracious or loving, but it is a call to not compromise on the truth, no matter where the truth takes us. But Jethro is amazingly gracious in this interaction. He responds in a way that we don't expect. It's a curveball. I mean, we might expect him to respond in a less gracious way, maybe more similar to the way Laban responded to Jacob in Genesis 31. Remember that story? When Jacob wants to leave, Laban, who's Jacob's father-in-law, says, No. No, Jacob. You can't go because you're good luck for me. I'm getting rich off you. I don't want you to take my daughters, my grandkids, and everything with you. No, you can't leave. So Jacob flees, and then Laban tracks him down. Remember what Laban says in Genesis 31, verse 43? He says, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you have is mine. What a wicked response. They're not his. They're God's. He's stewarding them on behalf of God. Parents, I hope that we are more like Jethro than Laban when our kids leave. <laughs> hey, no, 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 no. Why are you taking my grandkids away from me? Jethro says to Moses three remarkable words that illustrate who we expect to not be responsive is responsive. Those three words are go in peace. God bless you, shalom. When our children make good decisions to follow Christ, but they are painful decisions for us, will we be able to say things like that? When you have a child who wants to do something in obedience to the Lord, will you let him or her do that, even if it's hurtful to you, even if it separates you from your family and your grandchildren? When your child asks for your blessing to do a hard thing for the glory of God, will they have your blessing? I'm afraid that there are too many parents, really good and godly parents, who lose sight of their theology in moments like that. It becomes, you're going where? What? 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 With whom? What? Now there is definitely a place for wisdom, but we must also be sure that we aren't using wisdom as a cover-up for our comfort. There's not only a lesson here for parents and grandparents, but also a lesson for those of us who have parents, which is all of us if we still have our parents alive. Moses had the respect to speak to his in-laws. This is a mark of his humility and meekness that he would go back to Jethro and 
essentially asks for his permission. Do you see what he says? Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. And so we see here what is something that is so uncommon and what we're not particularly good at as Western Americans. We're sort of like, you know, parents, I'm an individual. I get to do what I want to do. Just deal with it. Moses is not like that. He's honoring his father, even as an 80-year-old man. And inasmuch as his father is also his employer, which he is, Moses is giving him the courtesy of a two-weeks notice before he leaves shepherding to take up the ministry of divine nation deliverance. Kids of all ages, take care how you leave. It's a lot harder on mom and dad than you think. And the respect that Moses shows Jethro is a good model for us here. But he responds so favorably, and that's not what we expect. That's certainly not what Moses expected. He wasn't expected that to go so smoothly, and yet Jethro, without a, without a qualm of conscience, without a problem at all, says, go in peace. That's curveball number one. Curveball number two, who we expect to be responsive isn't responsive. So we've seen with Jethro who we expect not to be responsive was, and now we're going to see with Pharaoh who we expect to be responsive isn't responsive. In verses 21 through 23, God says to Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh, but you shouldn't expect success, at least not initially. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel's my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, just to be clear, God had already told Moses what to expect from Pharaoh. In chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, if you look back at those verses, he says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So Moses was briefed on Pharaoh's resistance and was taught to expect that he will, in fact, resist him when he goes to him. So then why do I say that he should have expected a different response? For this reason, simply, wouldn't you expect that after seeing miraculous signs done over and over and over again, Pharaoh would acquiesce and release the Israelites? I mean, that's what any rational person would think. I mean, how many times does he have to go through this before he gets the message? So often in the Bible, God sends his servants, like Moses, on seemingly impossible tasks in which he promises them meager results. Do you think if God calls you to something that that guarantees its success? at least in the initial success, well, that's unrealistic. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Who wants to go on that mission trip? Could you imagine a mission agency sending Isaiah? What did Isaiah? Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6. He's 
immediately brought into consciousness of his sinfulness. He begs the Lord for mercy. God shows him mercy, and then he responds with, here am I, send me. Then he said, okay, here's where I'm sending you. I'm sending you to a bunch of people who are not going to listen to you, ever. That's the mission. Could you imagine a mission agency using that as its slogan? We specialize in sending individuals to hard-hearted people who will never listen to you. Click here to watch our support raising tutorial. <laughs> Listen, God promises that the truth will win out in the end, but ultimate success does not preclude immediate failure. Resistance is part of the gig. This is even primarily seen right here in this text in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is a major theme in the book of Exodus, and we're going to come back to it again and again, especially as we march through that plague narrative coming up in the upcoming chapters as God actually confronts Pharaoh through Moses. But this is the first time we've seen it here, introduced to this hardening of the heart theme. Now, there are at least 18 times to my recollection and my count in the chapters ahead that speak of Pharaoh's hardened heart. Three times... Pharaoh is said to harden his own heart. Six times, his heart is said to become hard in kind of a general way. And nine times, God is the one who hardens his heart. Now, this is really good theology. All right? This is the way the Bible talks that in our minds creates category confusion, but in the Bible's way of thinking and God's way of thinking makes perfect sense. And this is where good theology starts. God was sovereign over Pharaoh's heart, but not in a way that removes Pharaoh's own personal responsibility and accountability for his behavior. This is a key tension that must be maintained to be biblically faithful. You don't solve it, you hold to it. God is simultaneously sovereign in control over Pharaoh's hardening of his heart. And yet, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it can be attributed to both of them. I've often said that good theology means that we must not try to solve the tensions that are presented to us in Scripture. We allow them to coexist. If we do so, if you, or I say if we fail to do so and are forced in our minds to come up with some sort of solution, then what we will do is fall into error on one side or the other. We'll either fall into the error somehow that God's sovereignty negates human responsibility or that human responsibility negates God's sovereignty, and both of those are error. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? Yes. Is the Bible written by God or men? Yes. Is God one or is God three? Yes. Is our growth as Christians the result of God's grace or our effort? Yes. Does God elect some to eternal life and is the gospel freely offered to all? Yes. That's where we live in Scripture. Now, remember, coming back to this hardening of the heart theme, remember that the hardening we see here being done by God is in accord with Pharaoh's own self-hardening. It's very important. As Kevin DeYoung says, it was a divine hardening according to a rotten will, not in opposition to a humble disposition. 
What does he mean by that? And we have to understand that. We don't want to think of Pharaoh as sort of, oh Lord, how I love you. Oh Lord, I believe in you. I really want to do the right thing and I want to let your people go, but God says, no soup for you. (laughs) I'm glad you got that joke because if not, we're going to have to have further Seinfeld discipleship in this congregation. No soup for you, I'm going to harden your heart. Is that what's being presented here? No, that's not how it works. God is not keeping Pharaoh from doing good he really wants to do. It's like, I know how you really, really want to be a good guy, but I'm not going to let you. Pharaoh is hardening his own heart by resisting God. And on one level, that's happening. But on another level, God is also promising to harden his heart. Listen, this is a very sober and serious reminder to all of us. If you are here and you're outside of Christ, please know this. Your decision to not follow Jesus is not a neutral one. It is having personal effect on you. That decision has consequences. That decision results in a hardening that worsens over time. And in the end, you alone will bear the responsibility for it. And the harder you get, the less likely you will respond. Now, God teaches us here that his offer of mercy to us, if we're here outside of Christ, is not something that you should put off or take for granted. Romans 9, 16 through 18, or Romans 9, verses 16 through 18, Paul, writing about this very incident, writes, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If that scares you, I've got good news. The good news of the gospel, friend, is that today is the day of salvation. Cry out to God for mercy. Don't stiffen your neck and harden your heart any longer. Flee to Christ and he will receive you. He will give you a new heart. That's the promise of the new covenant. You will receive a new heart. Everyone who's a Christian in this room who's following Christ knows it because they've got one. They got a new heart that's not stubborn to God, that yes, sins, but is not resistant to him that is not stiff-arming him, that is not rejecting him, that grieves when it grieves him. That's the new heart. It's a heart of flesh. And that's what he promises to give us in the place of our hearts of stone. Did you notice that God calls Israel his firstborn son? Do you see that in verse 22? Did you know that Hosea 11.1 picks up that phrase? And in Matthew 2.15 Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, which is a quotation of Exodus 4, and applies it to Jesus. Jesus is God's ultimate firstborn son. He is the true Israel. And the amazing thing is that everyone who comes to Christ in faith becomes a true child of God. Jesus is called the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is our elder brother if we are in Christ. And that in Christ Jesus, 
According to Galatians 3.26, all of us are sons of God through faith. Praise his name. There is mercy available, but it's only for those who fear their hardness and flee to Christ. Curveball number three. We've seen the first two who we expected not to respond. Jethro responded favorably. Then we expect, well, surely Pharaoh will respond to this, and he's not. Two more curveballs. Curveball number three. What we expect to be okay isn't okay. What we expect to be okay isn't okay. Now we're going to come to everybody's favorite passage, verses 24 through 26. The most confusing passage, according to most Old Testament scholars, in the entire Old Testament. More ink's been spilled on this passage probably than any other passage, because it is really confusing. This passage is swirling in mystery, and I don't have time to go into all the mystery that's here. I'm hoping to stay with what is basically universally agreed upon. So without getting too much into the weeds, let's focus on the main point. The main point is this. We expect things to be okay between Moses and God, don't we? That's what we expect. I mean, God's called him. God saved him at birth. God was patient with him when he tried to do the deliverance deal on his own terms and was sent into exile in Midian for 40 years. He was patient with him. He gave him a family. He gave him a job as a shepherd. He's been with him and Now he's showed up in a theophany at the burning bush and revealed himself to him as the God who is. And then he begins speaking to him about all the things he's going to do with him. And then Moses keeps objecting and objecting and objecting. God's patient with him. Eventually at the very end when he says, please send someone else, God gets angry. But in his grace and mercy, he also provides Aaron to him. And then he sends him, picks his staff up, goes out. We expect things to be great. I mean, things are not okay. Things are not okay, at least not yet. Why is it not okay? What is going on here? Well, it seems to be that Moses has not been faithful to God's covenant, and that's what's going on here. Now, I want you to go back with me. We need to see this in Genesis about where Moses missed a step here. So go back to Genesis. Hold your finger in Exodus 4. Go back to Genesis 17, where we see God's covenant with Abraham. This was to be the identity marker that set apart God's people from the rest of people. This was the mark that they were in covenant with God. And that covenant was circumcision. We see it in Genesis 17. We'll start reading at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Now, is Moses an offspring of Abraham? Yes, he's a Hebrew. So this counts for him too. Verse 11, uh, ver, uh, continuing in verse 10, every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And that's what's happened here. That's what's happened here. God's anger is kindled 
with Moses because he's neglected to circumcise his son. By failing to do so, he has placed his son and ultimately himself in grave danger of judgment. His son is not in the covenant and he's breaking the covenant. Inside the covenant, all is well. Outside the covenant, all is lost. Now, we have seen in previous sermons that God is preparing Moses for his Exodus-shaped mission by giving him Exodus-shaped experiences along the way. He lives out the Exodus story personally multiple times before he ever does it professionally. We saw that he had it at his birth when he was rescued and brought out of the river into safety. We saw it when he was at age 40, when he was brought out of Egypt and called into the wilderness. And now we see it here again at age 80 as a prelude to Passover. Think about it. It's night, according to the passage. We haven't read it yet again. Let's, let's read it and make sure we get the context. Verse 24, at, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So I want you to get this before we get into the, the details here a little bit. It's at night, and Moses has been told to warn Pharaoh that his firstborn son may be killed because Israel is God's firstborn son. He already said that in verse 22 and 23. But Moses' own son has not been circumcised, which is the non-negotiable mark of Israel's divine sonship. Moses has neglected God's commandment and now stands outside the covenant under the same judgment as Pharaoh. So Zipporah, his wife, continuing the theme of women coming to the rescue, as we've already seen with the midwives and Pharaoh's daughter and Miriam and Moses' own mother. Zipporah circumcises her son and puts the blood on display, covering Moses with it so that the Lord will not kill him. His son's foreskin foreshadows the Passover lamb whose blood is sprinkled on the doorposts of Hebrews' homes to save them from the wrath of God. This reminds us of the gospel. Like Moses, we have failed to keep God's law and are thereby under the wrath of God. And the only way to be saved is for God's wrath to be turned aside, which can only be done through the blood of a substitute whose blood is then applied to us. This is a foreshadowing of what God's going to do at Passover, which is a foreshadowing of what God does in Christ, the true Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. This is exactly what Christ did on the cross for us. Now, this does not get us all the details that are under so much debate. For example, in verse 24, we said, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. There's some debate about whether that him is referring to Moses or Gershom, his son, who had not been circumcised. I think it's clear from the context, it's Moses. Because Gershom's not even been mentioned up until this point. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Now, feet is a complicated translation. It's, a, it's an idiom in Hebrew that's not easily translated into English. Feet can mean all sorts of things. For example, maybe you've heard of, 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 
of phrases like the Lord's compassion. He is slow to anger. You know what? Literally, it means the Lord has a long nose. That's what it says in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew idiom for compassion. Well, Hebrew uses the word feet for a lot of things. And one of the things that feet is often used for is genitalia. And so what is going on here is perhaps is that Zipporah is taking her son's foreskin and applying it to Moses so that it counts for him as well. Now, this whole phrase, bridegroom of blood, is very difficult to understand. I don't think it's essential that we figure out a precise interpretation because it has to do, we know this much from verse 26, as referring to the circumcision. Some people think this is Zipporah getting angry at Moses and kind of throwing the foreskin and being upset with him and saying, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Why do you make me do this? I don't think that's her posture at all. I don't think anything about Zipporah is doing anything in like, why didn't you get this done? See, we're outside of the covenant. It's your fault. No, she's serving her husband and serving her son and thereby putting them back in the covenant where they belong. Now, lest we think that this is somehow some practice that is going to continue ad nauseum for the rest of redemptive history, I just want to remind you we are living in a different covenant. We are under the new covenant, and circumcision is still a reality, but it's spiritual, not physical. Circumcision corresponds to our connection with Christ by faith in the New Testament. Give you a couple verses on that. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. In him also you, Christians, were circumcised in Christ with a circumcision made without hands. So it's a, it's a spiritual one, not a physical one. By putting off the body of flesh, that is the body of sin, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we're not obligated to a physical sign in the new covenant, but the physical sign does point to a spiritual sign that we must have. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Physical circumcision is not the issue now. Spiritual circumcision is. It points us to the deeper, more important reality. Paul says this multiple times in his letters, 1 Corinthians 7, 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. You think Paul was hung up on this? Yes, because he was a Jew trying to convert Jews out of Judaism into, into its fuller expression, Christianity. And they were getting hung up on the Abrahamic covenant. We've got to have the physical sign if we're going to be God's people. And he says the physical sign is a spiritual sign. It always pointed to a deeper spiritual reality. Nobody was ever saved because they just got their foreskin chopped. It was because it represented a circumcision of the heart. That's why the prophets pled with the old covenant people. Circumcise your hearts. Quit acting like this physical sign is all there is to get you in the covenant. It's not. You're not following God. You've got the physical sign. You're lost. And that's what Paul is reasserting in the New Testament. For us to be saved, we must be circumcised spiritually. That is, we must become a new creation in Christ with a new heart 
that wages war against sin, that seeks to obey God and walk in love, rooted in faith. That's what spiritual circumcision is. It is becoming a new creation in Christ, receiving a new heart that wages war against sin, seeks to obey God and walk in love, rooted in faith. Philippians 3.3 summarizes it well. Paul says, for we are the circumcision, talking about apostles and those who follow the apostles, Christians. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You want to be a true circumcised, you want to be recognized as the true circumcision? Do you glory in everything that Christ has done for you and put no confidence in anything you do? You're the true circumcised. Paul says. Now, I would hate for anyone to draw the wrong conclusion from my sermon last week. I spoke a lot about weakness and, ad- and inadequacy. And there is always a danger in doing that because some will equate weakness with sin. We must never use our weakness to avoid repentance. If there is real sin, we must deal with it. It's very biblical that God uses weakness. I don't want to take anything back that I said last week. He overcomes our weakness. He is strong in our weakness. But the weakness that God is happy to use is the weakness of our ability, the weakness of our natural skill, the weakness of our pedigree, the weakness of our broken history, the weakness of our tarnished past. It is not the weakness of disobedience to the covenant. If we refuse the covenant, God has no option but to put you to eternal death in hell, no matter how weak you are. So let's be clear. We're not talking about, oh, God's just super merciful to everybody who's weak, aren't we? No. If you're not in the covenant, you're in danger. That's what this passage teaches. So please, listen to me. I know the vast majority of us in this room are in the covenant. We're walking with Jesus. We've we've closed with Christ entirely by faith. We're resting on him. He's our only hope. We've gone public with baptism. We're members of the church, all that. But what I'm saying is if you're not walking with Christ, you need to get in Christ by faith. Call out to him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him and make sure that he has saved you. So that's curveball number three. What we expect to be okay is not okay. Finally and quickly, curveball number four. What we expect to not be okay is okay. What we expect to not be okay is okay. Do you remember how anxious Moses was last week? He was, he was, he was fretful. He was worried. He was concerned. Let's go back to chapter 3 quickly and look at verse 16. God tells Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to me. So he said, Go, go, go gather the elders and tell them this. And then in verse 18, And they will listen to your voice. They will listen to your voice. And you and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him. But what did Moses say in chapter 4, verse 1? God had already told him, go to the elders, they're going to listen to you. What does he say in 4.1? Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. God says, I want you to go talk to the elders, they'll listen. Moses says, I don't know. What if they don't? What if they don't listen? What if I don't have signs? What if they say, who are you? What if they say, weren't you the guy who killed somebody? 
It's been 40 years. Will they respond to me like they did before? God, what's going to happen? I don't know. And then do you notice what happens? Almost as a statement of matter of fact at the end of chapter 4. Look at verse 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Think about Moses. They're not going to listen. 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 Verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sign of the people, and the people believed. Things happened just the way God said they would. What we expect, what Moses expected to not be okay is okay. You been there? You been there? Fearing that situation, oh no, how's it going to go? How's it going to go? How's it going to go? It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. Oh, it's okay. We live there, don't we? Moses needed to be shaped. He needed to be refined. He had to learn that God could be trusted, just like we do. You know what? You worry about things. I know you because you're like me. You live out the future before it gets here. That's what anxiety is. Living out the future before it gets here. You go through in your mind all the bad things that could happen to you and to your family. And you know what? You get to those incidents and sometimes it is worse. But what if it's worse? You never think, well, that was so much worse. At least I worried. A lot of times, it, it, thankfully, it's not that way, right? It's not nearly as bad as you feared. The conversation goes a lot better. Those things didn't happen. And you think, God, why did I get myself so worked up about all this? Don't waste your time and energy on worry. Again, I'm just startled by Moses' refreshing candor and transparency. Aren't you? He wrote this. He's writing his own autobiography of sorts in the book of Exodus. And is this how you would start if you were called upon to write your autobiography? All the ways you've blown it and God has been gracious to you? Could you imagine him sitting down with a publishing agent for his book deal to write about his uh, autobiography? Now Moses, man, what a story. Man, man, where do we begin? Surely the first chapter needs to be about that time that you parted the Red Sea and brought the waves down upon the Egyptian army. Man, that'll really get them hooked. Man, they'll want to keep reading after that. Wait, 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 maybe the miracles. We'll start with the miracles or the amazing story of divine intervention at your birth. I mean, that's unique. You're special. Or, or Pharaoh's house. Man, what was it like to grow up in a palace? Oh, so much to say. Man, isn't he great? Aren't we glad that we got this guy to the book deal? And Moses would respond this way. Don't you dare start there. No. Let's not start there. Let's start with my unbelief. Let's start with the fact that I botched the mission the first go round. Let's, let's start and talk about all my failed leadership, my murder, my strife with the people, my exile for 40 years. Let's talk about my life as a backwoods shepherd. 
from riches to rags. Nobody wants to read that story. Let's talk about the time I argue with God and complain to him and how it didn't go well. Let's talk about the time I doubted God. Let's talk about the time I broke covenant and almost got killed because of it. And then I was really freaking out about the elders and that they weren't going to listen. And then you know what? They believed. Isn't God gracious? Let's start with that story. Let me close with this, brothers and sisters. In a world so topsy-turvy where things are so unpredictable and where curveballs are being thrown at us, where do we go for stability? Where do we look in times like this? I don't know about you, but I'm afraid that if I was sitting in in an interview with Walt Bettinger, I'd have gotten mad at the waiter. I would have talked about success in a me-centered way. I'd have failed the exam and not known who Dottie was. I would have swung and missed on every curveball. Is there any hope for someone like me, for someone like you, for someone like us? Yes. Praise God that we have a God who meets us with grace in the midst of our failures. Be reminded here of the way God continues to treat Moses. What motivates Moses to take up the staff and go? It is God's grace. It was because God, who was justifiably angry in chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, who was justifiably angry with him, showed him grace through the provision of his older brother Aaron to walk beside him. And brother and sister in Christ, we have the exact same promise and an even greater Aaron. We have an older brother who's been sent by God to walk beside of us to intercede for us. We have an older brother whom God has sent to walk alongside of us in our weakness, and that provision makes all the difference. In him and with him, we can face any awkwardness, bear up under any resistance, repent of any disobedience, and trust in him with great confidence. We have a greater Aaron. That is why Moses is being treated with such grace, because God has withheld the judgment that he deserved and poured out grace on him. Now, how do we grow in that? How do we grow in that grasp of that, in the stability of that? We do well to follow the example of the Israelites here in verse 31. They believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. Worship cures a thousand problems. Worship. We do well to follow the example of the Israelites. It's never too soon to worship. They gave God glory even while they were still waiting. The deliverance hasn't happened yet. What they knew and all that they knew is that God made a promise. And he's good for it. He had heard them. He had seen them. He cared. And that's oftentimes all we know too. He hears us. He sees us. And he cares. That's all I know. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why loss happens. I don't know, but I do know this. God loves us. God sees us. God hears us. God cares for us. I know he has a plan. I know he hasn't left us. I know he hasn't forsaken us. I will worship. I will worship. This is so, so different from Moses' initial response. God promised and he worried. How much time in chapter 3 was spent assuring Moses not to worry about his meeting with the elders compared to the actual time spent recounting what actually happened. 
that gets all of chapter 3 where his worry is being poured out and then the the recounting of what actually happened gets four verses, three verses. What does that teach us? Phil Riken says, there's a valuable lesson in this. Often the struggle comes at the point of deciding whether or not to follow God. But once the decision to follow him has been made, everything seems to fall into place and we are able to glorify God almost as a matter of course. So can you worship? Will you worship? Remember where they are. They're still in Egypt. They haven't been set free yet. They're still waiting for their deliverance. Things are about to go from bad to worse, as we'll see next week, as they have to make bricks without straw. And they would in the future often doubt and complain to Moses. But here at the outset, they respond just as they should respond. They believe and they worship. Will you worship even in the waiting? Let's pray and then we'll stand to do just that. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture which is so rich with your activity and what it teaches us about who you are and what this world is like to navigate through and why you can be trusted. We pray that you would encourage us from this passage of scripture this morning that we would be instructed, that we would be brought to greater trust in you, that we would rest in you, that we would hope in you, and that that would fuel worship of you. Thank you for the example of Moses. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for the ways we see our brokenness and his brokenness our weakness and his weakness, our unbelief and his unbelief. And thank you that you met him with such grace by the provision of a greater Aaron. You gave him his older brother. We have a greater older brother, one who has been called alongside of us to intercede for us and walk with us through this mazy, confusing, confusing, curveball-filled sort of life. We thank you that he is strong, that he is stable, that he's our rock, that he's our strong tower. When all around our soul gives way, he then is all our hope and stay. Let not Help us not to trust in the sweetest frame, the most amiable, believing disposition, but help us to only trust in Jesus' name as we respond in song now to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.